Uh, would you open your Bibles to Psalm 119? Uh, we've run a little long with the prophetic words and the baptisms, and so I'm sitting over there thinking, which part of this message should I cut to get you out on time? I've decided to cut none of it, okay? I just want to, I want to prepare you for that, so you're not saying, you know, just put your watches away. Jesus doesn't wear a wristwatch, all right? I can't actually say that with absolute certainty, but I'm assuming. Most messages that you've heard from this pulpit have points of application so that you can take what's being taught, the truth you're being taught, and apply it to your lives. This message will have application, but it's designed to be more than that, so it's a bit unique in what we're doing from the pulpit today. This message is designed to teach you how to apply the Bible. Okay, so it will apply the Bible. We're coming out of a text. We're going to teach the whole text. But we're using that not just to, to teach us from that text, but to teach us the how of taking truth and realizing it into our lives. So we're calling this message, Putting Truth to Work. Now, I want you to picture your kitchen sponge. All right, you may use the yellow and green kind, no brand names from up here. You may use the light blue and dark blue kind, or you may be rogue and use a different brand. But picture it in your mind right now. It's sitting on your counter. The last person who used it didn't put it away. It's sitting on your counter next to your sink. There's no water around your sponge. And to the eye, your sponge looks dry. So you reach over, you pick it up, and you squeeze it over your sink, and water pours out into your sink. It's an important picture to keep in your mind throughout this message. You see, it's a picture of a spiritual reality for many of us. We read the Bible, we sit and listen to sermons, and we genuinely believe what we see in the Bible and what we hear when we're taught. Let's call that belief professed faith. It's the faith we profess. It's the faith that we believe to be true. At least we believe it mentally, intellectually. Just like the sponge appeared to be dry, there was truth in that. It wasn't so saturated that the water was coming out. It was dry to a degree. But then in our lives, we get squeezed. What comes out of us when we get squeezed? We're going to call that functional faith. It's the faith that actually governs our decisions in trials and in temptations. Now I'm going to say something that I want you to hear carefully. When squeezed, we only rise to the level of our functional faith. We can only live out of what we truly and deeply believe. We may proclaim great truth, read great books, listen to great sermons, and say amen to all of it. And we should do that. But that's all simply professed faith. What comes out of us in our trials? 
is what we really believe. Now we all, every one of us, myself included, we have gaps between what we know to be true and what we live to be true. That gap is where your besetting sins live. That gap is where doubts thrive. And when you feel doubt and you press through and there's victory, what happens? The gap closes. This message is here for you today to help you close the gap. Okay, we want to close the gap between our professed faith and our functional faith. And we're going to do that coming out of Psalm 119. Not the whole thing. I, t- I, I wouldn't keep you here that long. Just one stanza, verses 9 through 16. Let's look at that together. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Let's pray. Lord, I do ask that in this moment, you would take your word and whatever that comes out of my mouth, which is true. And you would apply it to the hearts of each person here. Lord, give me ears to hear my own sermon so that you'd apply it to my heart as well. And help us at the end of this time to trust you and your word more deeply and more joyfully. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to protect you from a common mistake coming to a passage like this. It's easy to take a passage and to turn it into a checklist and just march forward. Keep my way pure? Check. Store up God's word? Check. We apply ourselves to growth, but we often do it with the wrong power or for the wrong reasons. And so we experience great victory for about two or three weeks. And then we fall off because our flesh gets tired of working against its nature. Okay, this passage is not here for you to use as a checklist. We are finite creatures. And we will not realize the perfect and complete realization of this passage until we are on the other side. There is only one who attained this goal. There is only one who has kept his way perfectly pure. Only one has sought God with his whole heart. His name is not Rob. His name is Jesus. And while we're called to follow after Jesus and to walk according to his ways, we don't attain purity 
in our lives by discipline and obedience alone. Now, in fact, the way to break the power of sin in your life is to entrust yourself fully to his account of righteousness, not to build up your own. The way to break the power of sin is to entrust yourself to the fact that he has paid the penalty for your sin. In God's immeasurable love and his immeasurable wisdom, he gives us the righteousness he earned and takes the penalty we earned, thereby canceling the power of sin and the threat of eternal death. 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And this is really good news for our functional faith. Because the power of sin has been broken. As you start to apply this passage, you do it on the side of victory. We start with the power of the Spirit. We don't dig our own way out of our sin. We start with Jesus. And as we continually prioritize Jesus, He takes us up from the miry pit and He puts our feet on the rock. And so we must be very, very careful as we obey, which the rest of this message is going to call you to, and as we show discipline, which this passage calls us to, we don't do it to earn God's favor. We do it because we already have God's favor. We run after purity not because we want to be free, but because God has already made us free and calls us to walk in that freedom. We strive, close, we strive to close this gap between our profession, profession faith and our functional faith. We, we strive to close it not so that we can become someone else, but because God has already changed us. And so in light of that incredibly good news, we can apply the truth of Psalm 119. All right, that sounded like my first point, but this is my first point. Relying on God's word. Right at the beginning of this passage, there is a premise that is floated out that we are called to buy into right away. Here's the premise. We can keep our way pure if we live according to God's word. Look at verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Now, if we miss verse 9, we're like, okay, there's nothing really to obey there. Let me jump right in to verse 10. We won't have what it takes to apply and follow through. This premise must be accepted. The rest of the stanza depends on it. So I want to pause and I want to ask you this. Do you believe that the way to guard your life is to live according to God's word. Okay, we all would say yes, that's true. That we're professing that. 
Let me ask you a couple diagnostic questions to see where your functional faith is in that. In your biggest area of temptation, what role does the Word of God play? When you're facing hardship and someone shares the Word of God with you, do you receive that with joy? Or do you somehow find a way to fight that? When enduring a trial, do you find that you spend less time in God's Word or more time in God's Word? Now, these, these questions I don't give to condemn you. I don't know the answers. I don't know how you would answer those. But they're good diagnostic questions to test functionally if you really believe what you're saying you believe. The way to walk uprightly is to guard my way according to God's word. So when my way is at risk and I'm facing temptation, am I in God's word? Great, then our functional, that gap is, is small. If I'm not, that gap is large. Many of us profess to believe what the Bible says about itself. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. But functionally, we must be so certain of these claims that the Bible makes about itself, so certain that we will entrust ourselves fully to what God says. So let me illustrate. I may be the closest friend of a structural engineer. And I may watch her design a bridge. I may watch her oversee the building of that bridge. When it's all done, I may inspect that bridge with every ounce of knowledge, which isn't much, I bring to the situation. And I could be certain in my mind that that bridge is safe. All I've done so far is to profess faith. I have functional faith when I walk across that bridge. Okay? So that, that's how we exercise functional faith. That is the difference between professed faith and functional faith. That we are so certain of what God says, so certain that it's true, so certain that he will not fail, that I take that step across the bridge and he's either going to make good on what he said or I'm done. When we're able to do that, we've closed the gap between our profession of faith and our functional faith. The goal is to be confident in who we know, not in what we can see. Our goal is to testify to a faith that's beyond sight, a power that no eye can see. This is the premise verse 9 holds out for us. And verses 10 through 16 shouldn't start being applied until you wrestle with this one. Now, how do you gain that kind of confidence? If you see the premise and you acknowledge the premise, we've got to now start walking across bridges. We've got to apply 
God's Word. And that's point number two, applying God's Word. Several years ago, there's a number of pastors here who will attest to this story with varying levels of mocking. I was playing hockey with the guys on a team retreat, and I threw out my back. I stuck it out the rest of the retreat. No applause necessary. Thank you. But I went to see the doctor, the chiropractor, the Monday after, and he adjusted my back, relieving the pain, and he paid me the most unkind compliment. His exact words, as best as I can remember them, bitterness removed, was this. Your back muscles are so strong, they are overpowering your weak abs. <laughs> and he had the audacity to charge me for the visit. <laughs> but the point wasn't lost on me. I needed to give my abs attention. But I want to ask the question he didn't ask. Why are your abs so weak? He probably already knew the answer to that question, but I'll come clean with you now because I don't give them attention. I don't exercise them. And because of that, not only do my abs suffer, not only does my back suffer, but my whole body suffers. And this is true in our spiritual lives. If there are areas of weakness, if we fail to give them attention, not only will that area suffer, but your strengths get weakened, and the whole spiritual life you're living suffers. And so we must give attention to those underdeveloped areas, and thankfully, this psalm hits a bunch of them. First, in verse 10, this psalm calls us, calls us to treasure God's word. Look at it. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Listen, we treasure what is most important to us, and it's not even that which is often of greatest monetary value. I actually have a house fire illustration here. This isn't because of what Nate just said. If you've got a house fire, you're not necessarily running in to get the couch and the TV. Though that they may be the things you pay the most money for in the house. You're getting the people and the pictures. Hopefully in that order. Why? Because those things are invaluable. They cannot be replaced. And in times like that, we, it, we have this clarity about what is important and what is to be treasured. When we take a look at Jesus' relationship with God's Word, it was clear He treasured the Word of God. He always did the will of the Father. David's relationship with God's Word was clear. When he cherished God's Word, he walked uprightly. When he didn't consider God's Word, he fell. Growing in how we treasure God's word will strengthen you from the inside out. So ask yourself, do I treasure God's word? Do I treasure it more now than I did when I was first born again? Do I treasure it more now than last year? If not, this may be an area that needs attention. Next, we memorize God's word. Look at verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart 
that I might not sin against you. Now many times, we don't obey God because we don't know He has something to say on the matter. And too often, our conviction comes after the fact rather than in the time of need. But if God's Word is stored in our hearts, it is always standing at the ready to be put to use. It is always there to direct you away from the passions of your flesh towards the desires of God. So how do we store it in our hearts? Well, the only way is to know it and memorize it. But memorizing large passages of Scripture, whole books even, though it's a wonderful exercise, if you can do it, if you're not accustomed to memorizing God's Word, don't start with something that big. Let me suggest this. That area of temptation that I was talking about, your area of greatest need, identify passages in the Scripture that are specifically geared for that and start memorizing them. Write them out on real index cards, like the old kind. Carry them with you. Go through them at stoplights, not while you're driving, but at stoplights. And just be begin the habit of equipping you in your area of greatest need. As you, the gap closes in that area, pick another need, and then another, and then another, and you will find yourself strengthened because you've treasured God's Word enough to know it and memorize it. Next, we study God's Word. Look at verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. Friends, we need to be growing in our knowledge and understanding of God's Word as we grow in our faith. And that means when we read it, we tear it apart. We, all those little letters and numbers that are stuck in between those words in a passage, we start learning what they're for and we pay attention to them. We're going to cover that a little later. We read about God's Word. We study commentaries on God's Word. Bottom line, we, frequent, we increasingly become students of God's Word. This is why here at Covenant we offer Bible studies in our men's and women's ministries. This is why we love to read and recommend books. This is why we have Sunday school and renewing your mind meetings. This is why you carry a Bible with you when you come here and when you go to small group and when you go to these Bible studies. You bring your Bible with you so that you can learn it. We need to have this desire in our hearts that calls out to God, teach me your statutes. Next, we share God's word. Look at verse 13. With my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. I just want to tell you, obeying God's word is difficult if it's not frequently on your lips. Sometimes... Our lack of confidence in the Word of God is the biggest reason that we don't share the Word with people at work or with our neighbors. We're afraid that they're going to ask us a question we don't know. 
But that's okay because you, you don't know everything about God's Word. You're a student. We just covered it. So if, if you ask and sh ask questions of your neighbor or of your coworker, and you share God's Word, you share the Gospel, and they say, yeah, but what about this? And you don't know? What a great question. I've never thought of that before. This is going to help me learn the Bible even better. Let me get back to you tomorrow. And then you call a friend, you reach out to a pastor, you go to your Bible and you find it yourself. And then you go back the next day and say, hey, thanks for asking that question. It actually helped me that you asked that question. And now you know God's word better. But if it's never in our mouth and we don't share it with the lost, we're not pressed to know it better. It needs to be on our lips. Next. We love God's word above all else. Look at verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Now this parallels what I said above about treasuring God's word. And it begs this question. What do I love more than God's word? Is it a material thing? Is it a person? Is it some liberty that you have? Friends, the best way for you to relate to that material thing, that person, or that liberty is to love God's word more than that. And I will tell you, one of the greatest weaknesses that I have in this area is, and Gina would be very aware of this, is I can oftentimes prioritize her relationship with me above my relationship with God. And if I, I could go some days and be, you know what, Jesus and I aren't doing great right now, but I can get on with my day. If Gina and I are not doing great, I'm done. Like, it locks me up. And doesn't that, that sounds really nice, like I'm a great husband. It is a weakness in my discipleship. Not that when, I'm, when Gina and I are out of sync that, that I'm affected, that should affect me. But goodness, it should affect me much more when Jesus and I are out of sync. We need to be careful about what we treasure more than God. Next, we meditate on God's word. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I want to tell you Christian meditation is a lost art. Now, I'm not thinking yoga I'm not, you know, I'm not going into that kind of Eastern meditation, but what I am saying is this. Meditating on the Word of God, taking a passage or a verse or even a word and dwelling on it until the lights come on is something that in our distracted culture we decreasingly give time to. We've given ourselves 15 minutes for a quiet time. I'm in minute 13, and God has just punched me in the nose. And i got to figure out what he's punched me for, but I've only got two minutes. I'll get back to that. And we don't get back to it. We miss the activity of the Spirit because we don't sit in it and meditate on what he's doing. So let me give you a few questions that you can ask yourself of just about any text. What claim is this text or this verse or this word making on my life right now? If I were to apply this passage, what impact would it have in how I live? What words are the key words in this verse? 
and what can I learn by dwelling on them? When we meditate on God's Word, we slow down and we reflect so that we can actually apply what we're reading. So in your quiet time, let me just encourage you, there's no Bible verse that tells me about this. It's just take it or leave it. Don't do your quiet times off of your Bible app on your phone. All the algorithms in the other apps are trying to reach you in your phone. No need to do that. If you don't have a paper Bible, talk to us. We'll get you one. Have your quiet times in an actual Bible, okay? Put your phones on airplane mode while you're in your quiet time. It's a very rare occurrence that whoever's calling you is more important than the person you're with, which is God, at that moment. Okay? Cut off distractions so that you can meditate. And then lastly, verse 16, we remember what we know. It says, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Now, personally, I believe this is the Achilles heel to the Christian life. It is incredible how much truth we've been taught. Think about it. However long you've been in this church, how many books of the Bible have we been through? How much of the word have you been preached? In the Bible studies, men's and women's ministry, counseling sessions, how much of the word have we been taught? Now, you're welcome, but now... Let me ask you this, how much of that can you recall right now? It is incredible how much we forget. I was at a church event a little while ago and a brother thanked me for a message I preached three years ago. And I think he had just listened to it and he was sharing with me how affected he was by this point I made. I don't remember preaching the sermon, let alone the point that I made. Let, let me give you one better. Listen to this. I, I, was, in, I was in a radio interview for my book, and the, the, the host of that interview said this. He said, Rob, your knife illustration was so effective. Where did you come up with that and explain that to us? I said, I hate to do this. I have no idea what you're talking about. And so in those things, you're all wearing headphones, right? So the producer says, Rob, it's the illustration in this chapter when he said this, 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 and this. And I said, oh my gosh, that's a great illustration, yes. And so I forgot it, and I wrote the book. Okay, we are prone to forget. We are prone to forget. So what can we do about it? First of all, throw yourself on the mercy of God. But after that... I just want to ask you, are you a note taker during sermons like this? If you're not, that could be a good place to start. Write down some things. You're like, oh, that's good. Write it down because the time you hit the parking lot, you will have forgotten it. Many times, not all the time, but many times. So become a note taker. If you are a note taker, routinely review your notes. Lord, remind me of your statutes. Remind me. Let me not forget. All right, so I just went through a bunch of stuff, went through every verse in that passage. 
what I want to do in my closing minutes is to put all of those things together in a single example so you can see how it works. All right, first, what do we do? We take a real-life issue. I'll name a few, and then we'll land on just one. Maybe you struggle with body image or discontentment. Perhaps you wonder about identity issues or you're facing a significant medical situation. Whatever that real-life issue is, get specific. Just like when you're confessing sin. You know, I, I'm prideful. That's actually not all that helpful. Because pride is the source of all of our sin. Okay? We want to get specific. How are we struggling in our faith? Okay, so rather than saying, you know, can you pray for me? I'm struggling or, you know, I'm struggling with the Lord. You want to say this. I'm struggling with blank. My faith is weak. Ah, that's, that's very broad to get your hands around. You could say my faith in God's goodness is weak. All right, we can deal with that. We can go fight that doubt. So let's pick one, okay? And we'll run it through everything that I've taught so far. Let's say you're struggling with unforgiveness toward a friend. They've hurt you in a significant way a number of years ago, and you can't get to a place of forgiveness. So in your regular reading of God's Word, you come across Colossians 3.13. Bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Keep it up there for a minute. You read it again, looking for the escape clause. Where it says... You, Forgive as the Lord has forgiven you, except if that person's name is blank. But you don't find an escape clause. And you just honestly reply, Lord, I can't. I just can't forgive what they did. This is where so many of us stop. We see the command we don't believe we can obey, and we live in opposition to God's desire for us. We fail to move forward toward obedience because we don't believe we can do it. And let me just affirm something. You're right. You can't forgive, but God can through you. How? Well, first, we look in the verse for help and we meditate on it. We notice it doesn't say, forgive as much as you're able. If you were able, you already would have done it. No, the verse says, as the Lord has forgiven you. And so we ask the obvious question, which is, how has the Lord forgiven me? Well, let's assume you kind of know that answer a bit ambiguously, but you want to know it more specifically. So you look at the cross-reference, that little letter that's superscripted in the text, and you see that it points you to Mark eleven twenty-five. 25. And whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. 
Now, that doesn't give us a whole bunch of new information, but it does reinforce the information we already have, which means God has repeated himself. When God repeats himself, we should pay attention. Now, I can't do it holds less weight because you know this matters to God and you love God. So now your inclination to move away from obedience is weakened because your love for God is stirred. And so we're saying, okay, Lord, I give in, but I don't know how to do this. So we go to our concordances, the back of your Bible, and we, we look up the word forgive. And one of the many things that comes up is Romans 4, verses 7 to 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. And we freeze. We freeze because we remember the many things the Lord could hold against us. We think of how we've sinned against others, how we've disobeyed God's law, sinned in our heart in ways that no one but God would know. And right there, it hits us like a ton of bricks. I am actively sinning against God by not forgiving. And he's not holding that against me. He's fellowshipping with me as I'm sinning in unforgiveness against him. What kind of mercy is this? In that very moment, we're overwhelmed with the irony that we are experiencing in incredible measure the very thing God is asking us to overflow out of our hearts in small measure to a brother or sister in Christ. And we remember that one of Jesus' last phrases was, Father, forgive them. The very people who were nailing him to the cross, he was actively forgiving. This is his heart toward us. This is the kind of mercy we receive. And we just say in all honesty, how could I forbid? How could I refuse to extend that kind of mercy to someone when I am aware of how much of it I've received myself? And I just did that in about 10 minutes. And suddenly, what you could not do, you know you now must do, and you know by the grace of God he's going to help you do it. How did we get there? Just by applying Psalm 119, verses 9 to 16, that's all we've done. And we do these things, not so God will love us more. No, we grow in treasuring God's word and we live according to God's word because he loves us so immeasurably. And though we will do it all imperfectly, and sporadically, we can have the assurance that how God looks at us and judges us is on the perfect way Jesus did 
all of these things. When his sponge was squeezed, there was no gap between his professed faith and his functional faith. How did he ultimately keep his way pure? He lived according to God's word. And though we will not reach perfected faith, this side of heaven, God is conforming us into the image of his son. And as we continue to apply what we've talked about, that gap gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. We pursue holiness because God has made us holy. And we live for him, not so that he loves us, but because he loves us. And what's the result? Increasingly, our way is made pure. Amen.